All right, well, if you've been with us throughout the course of our study of the Gospel of John, which is what we're studying this year together as a church, you already know that this Gospel was written for a very specific purpose, and you already know what the purpose is, but I want to rehearse it with you for a minute. John gets all the way to the end of his Gospel, pretty much. He looks back upon everything that he's written about, all the stories, all the sayings, all the events, all the happenings, all the things that he has included and written very artfully, very carefully for us, and then here's what he says, John 20, beginning in verse 30. It says, now Jesus did, don't miss it, many other signs in the presence of his disciples, of which, of course, John is one. And then he says, which are not written in this book. So now what does that tell you about the purpose of this book? Well, it tells you what it's not. This book is not John's way of saying, I want to tell you absolutely everything I know and can gather up about all that Jesus did and all the places Jesus went and all the people Jesus saw and all the sermons Jesus preached and all the things that Jesus taught. That's not the point. And he tells us that. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. However, he then says, but these teachings, these stories, these happenings, these carefully selected events and artfully presented events, well, he says these are written, why? Because here's the purpose. So that you may, what's the next word? Believe. Yeah, a little enthusiasm next time, all right? so that you may believe. Now listen, that's the key word of the day today. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, what do you get? You may have life, meaning abundant life and eternal life in His name. Now, I remind you of that today. Because today we get to chapter 7, which deals with a lot of different things. The one I'm going to focus on is that word belief. What does that mean? What does that look like? And what's interesting to me is I kind of got through this whole chapter, and it's pretty lengthy. As I got through this whole chapter, and I looked at how John talked to us in some sense about this idea of what it means to believe in Jesus, I realized that he's telling us what it means to believe in Jesus by showing us what it doesn't mean to believe in Jesus. In other words, instead of coming to us with people who have true and authentic, life-transforming, I actually know the living Word of God who is Jesus and actively live out my life for Him kind of faith, and then getting to the end of the chapter and saying, okay, you've seen these faithful people, now what I want you to do is to compare yourself and your faith to them. Instead of doing that, He comes to us with faithless people. People who do not have, at least at this point in their story, who do not have true and authentic life transforming, I actually know the living word of God who is Jesus Christ and actively live my life for him kind of faith. And he gets to the end and in so many words kind of says, okay, now you compare yourself to them. And and I want to warn you, if you're brave enough to go there, and I hope that you are, you're going to see some likenesses. You're going to look at them and look at you and go, huh, I think I recognize that person. And it may be that when we get to the end of the message, you're going to look at them and look at you and go, hey, you know what? They're pretty much an exact representation of me. Translation, I don't have faith. Well, that's a healthy discovery if it then drives you to Christ. If it drives you to the one who is Savior and Lord. And please don't miss the and. You know, one of the things that I think that we struggle with, all of us, Christian and non-Christian, when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to God, is we'd like for him to be divisible. In other words, I'd like to have Jesus as counselor. I'd like to have Jesus as comforter. I'd like to have Jesus as, you know, miracle worker, because that's helpful to me. 
I'd like to have Jesus as friend, as healer, as this, that, and the other thing. I want Jesus as Savior. I'm all about that, but I'm not so much interested in Jesus as Lord. Jesus doesn't come in pieces. You know, it's not like Morrison's cafeteria, and you can go down the line, I'd like some meatloaf, and I want no part of that fish. I want a double scooping of, you know, the chocolate pudding and some jello, and keep the veggies. The Lord is a composite. He is Savior and Lord, and we're threatened by the very thing that is meant to set us free. We, we write off and resist as being bad that which is, frankly, most helpful and good. Look, if we get to the end of the message and you go, that person actually is me, and I don't have faith in Christ, that's a healthy realization. If you then come to Jesus and surrender not just your sin, but your whole self to him. That may be the realization that you have, but it may be that you have faith in Jesus, but you still recognize something in these people. Well, that's true of you as well. You realize that the thing that keeps them from Christ is the thing that, in some sense, still keeps you from Christ. You realize that, that you've been picking and choosing when it comes to Jesus, and Jesus can't be picked and chosen from. He's a whole He's a composite. You'll recognize that maybe some things have crept back up onto the throne of your life that need to be displaced, repented of, and forsaken and turned away from that you might then turn toward Christ and grant Him again the rightful place on the throne of your heart. So that's kind of where we're going as we move into chapter 7 this morning. We pick up our study in John chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, where John writes this. He says, after this, meaning after everything that's just happened in chapter 6. So after Jesus has fed the 5,000 from basically nothing, after Jesus has, don't miss it, little pause for effect, walked on water, after he's claimed to be the bread of life, after he's performed startling miracle, after startling miracle, after startling miracle, and where does he do this geographically? In the northern part of what we would call the nation of Israel today, he does it in Galilee, in his kind of hometown area. After this, John says, Jesus went about in Galilee in that area. Why? Well, because he wouldn't go about in Judea, which is in the southern part of what we would call the nation of Israel. It encompasses the great city of Jerusalem. He he wouldn't go about there, but why would he not go about there? Because the Jews, meaning not every Jew in Israel, but the Jewish religious leaders, those who stand opposed to Jesus, were what? Because it isn't subtle. Were seeking to kill him. And as we'll see as we get into the text, that's pretty well known. Wow. But then John says this. They were seeking to kill him, and then he says, now the Jews, Feast of the Booths, it's also called the Feast of the Tabernacles, was at hand. Now, what does that mean? That means they've reached the point in the calendar where they've come in the fall to the third of three feasts that the Jews had during which the men of Israel were to appear before the Lord and they brought their families, by the way, before the temple in Israel. So what he's saying is we've reached one of those points in the calendar where basically everyone from all over the place who was Jewish was going to converge on Jerusalem. They're packing up. They're getting ready to go. And the question is, what is Jesus going to do? Well, let's see what his brothers say. 
John says, now the feast of the booths was at hand. And then he says, and his, Jesus' brothers, said to him, there's their advice, leave here, leave Galilee, leave up here in the north where you're basically among friends and go to Judea to this feast like everyone else is about to do and do it even though we all know that the Jewish religious leaders are seeking to kill you and do this so that your disciples, meaning here I think not people who have already seen Christ do miracles and have come to faith in Jesus and heard his teaching and all that kind of stuff, but meaning I think instead... All the people from all over Israel who are going to converge on Jerusalem and who will, if he goes and does things like walk on water, feed 5,000, startling miracle after startling miracle, come to faith in him. So that your disciples, they're saying, also may see the works that you're doing. I mean, Jesus, why limit the scope of your ministry to Galilee when by going to this feast where everyone from all over the place is converging, you could expand the scope of your ministry to, well, where everyone all over the place lives. There's a certain logic to it, isn't there? So you listen to their advice and you think to yourself, you know, maybe it's sincere, but as we'll see in a second, it's not. Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea. Yeah, we know they're trying to kill you. That your disciples, all these people who will believe in you, if they just could see you, maybe walk across the pool of Siloam or something, can see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things like these miracles that you do here and you do them there, well, then show yourself to the world, he's saying, for the whole world, in some sense, is gathering in Jerusalem. And again, it sounds like good advice until you read the next statement. What does John say? Because it has our word for the day in it. He says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now, that's going to change down the road. Jesus is going to live, die, be buried, rise again from the dead, and then appear to his brothers, which I think is pretty much what it would take for someone to believe that their brother is the Messiah, the Son of God, Savior of the world, and the sole source of satisfaction for their soul, don't you think? And it will work for them. But at this stage in the game, not even his brother's believed in him, which tells you what? It tells you that they don't want Jesus to go up to Jerusalem because they're really interested in sincerely advancing his cause. They want him to go up to Jerusalem because they're thinking that maybe somehow that will advance their cause. They don't want Jesus to go up because they want to promote Jesus and exalt Jesus and glorify Jesus. You know, I mean, even at their own expense, even at the expense of their own lives, if that's what it comes down to, because of course, Jesus Christ is the all-consuming treasure, not just of the universe, but of their hearts, and he sits upon the throne of their hearts. So Jesus, let's go. It will advance your mission. No, they're seeking to advance their mission. They're hoping that they can use him in some way, shape, or form to lift up, to exalt to bring glory to themselves, even if it costs him his life, because they are their own all-consuming treasure. And they are the disappointing little God who sits upon the throne of their life. These guys want Jesus to go up to the Feast of Booths so they can follow him around with kind of a mobile booth. And they can sell the official, straight from the brothers of Jesus, first official what would Jesus do t-shirts and wristbands and books and CDs and, or at the very least, they're hoping that he, you know, gathers up a bunch of followers so they they can then safely go back to Galilee where they can set up an export business to do the same. Somehow they're looking to advance themselves through the advancement of Jesus. They're looking to be advantaged through his risk. 
And so even though the brothers of Jesus know that the religious leaders of the Jews are hoping to kill him, they encourage him to go to the feast anyway, not to advance his cause, but their cause. And if you know this story, Jesus, at least initially, refuses to go. But then we read this in verse 10. It says, but after his brothers had already stopped all the presses on the t-shirt and called the guy and canceled all the wristbands, packed up all the books and CDs they were going to take and put it back up in the attic and had gone to the feast themselves, then Jesus also went up, not publicly, however, but in private. And notice what's happening when he gets there. John says the Jews, again meaning these Jewish religious leaders, the adversaries of Christ, were looking for Jesus actively at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the crowd, among the people. And while some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading people astray. And yet for fear of these guys who were hunting for Jesus, if you will, no one spoke openly of him. So notice what Jesus does. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began doing the incredible miracles that his self-interested, self-exalting, self-promoting brothers, who are now really discouraged because they had left all the t-shirts behind in Galilee, wanted him to do. It's not what he does. He doesn't go when they want him to. He doesn't go how they want him to. And he doesn't do what they want him to. He's following the counsel of another advisor. He does what his father directs him to do. He says what his father directs him to do. And as we're going to see here in a second, he gives all the glory to his father. Please don't miss it when we get there. It says about the middle of the feast. The feast is a seven-day feast, so about the third or fourth day. Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews there marveled at his teaching, but not for the right reasons. They marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So they skate right past the beauty of his teaching. They walk right by the profundity, the profound nature of his teaching. They miss completely the life that is dripping and oozing out of every word that this man who is God himself in the flesh, standing in their midst, bringing forth the word of God, is offering to all takers, including us. And they're just stunned that a guy, you know, who's never been to seminary can actually teach like this. And then Jesus says something that I think is really instructive to all of us who have a tendency to be self-promoters, and forgive me, but that's all of us. I think maybe, I don't know, maybe just in my imagination, he gives a shout out to his brothers, you know, in the crowd, like, hey, are you here? They're like, back here, and we're upset about the shirts. Wish you would have said something. And he said, okay, this is for you self-promoters. Learn from my example. Verse 16, Jesus answered them, my teaching, which is in fact truly marvelous, worthy of glory and praise. Look what he does with it. Says it's not mine but his who sent me. What is Jesus doing? Jesus, who unlike anyone else ever, can actually rightly claim glory for himself, takes all the glory that he's receiving and he packages it up like a present. Not some of it, not most of it, all of it. And he delivers it to his father. What a lesson that is for those of us who claim Christ, for those of us who are called not to wear what would Jesus do paraphernalia. I'm not against that, But here's what we're called to do. We're called to live what would Jesus do kind of lives. Notice how he lives. 
Notice what he does. And so what is John, who wrote this whole book, again, to call us to true and authentic, life-transforming, I actually know the living Word of God, who is Jesus, and actively live for Him by faith, day-by-day-by-day kind of faith, teaching us about faith through the example of Christ here. Well, He's teaching us that it's not self-promoting faith, God-promoting faith. It's not self-exalting. It's God-exalting. It's not self-glorifying. It's God-glorifying even at the expense of self. It's not self-interested. It's not self-centered. And it ever calls us to see and to behold this Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God and Savior of the world, as the sole, all-consuming treasure of the universe, and not just the universe, but we're to make Him that in our hearts. He's to occupy His rightful place in our heart, guys. And that's on the throne. We're to stop running around seeking to use Jesus to advance ourselves. I'm like, I'm like happy you're in the throne room somewhere, Jesus, but I'm on the throne and, you know, I'm glad that you're here in case I need you, however. And instead, to start running around, actively seeking to live for Him and to bring Him glory, to advance His cause, to put Him on the throne of our hearts and to take our place off of it and to say, okay, now what do we do? Where do we go? What do you want to do with this life you've given me? So I thought about that this week. I thought, you know, the example of Jesus includes not only this example of selflessness where he's saying, okay, listen, I could take the glory, but I'm giving it to my Father. But it includes the example of crucifixion as well. To follow Jesus, guys, is to die to self. It is to crucify our will in favor of His. It is to crucify our desires in favor of His. It is to crucify our agendas in favor of His. It is to crucify our puny little missions in favor of His eternal and great missions. It is to get up every single day and crucify ourselves that we might truly live. So Jesus answered them in verse 16. He says, my teaching, which is admittedly marvelous, is not mine, but his who sent me. And then listen to what he says next and follow his logic if you can, because it's counterintuitive. It takes some doing like you're going, huh, what? Because it, I mean, think this through for a second. He says, if anyone's will, if anyone's desire, if anyone's agenda, if anyone's mission, if anyone's will, he says, is to do whose will? God's will. If anyone's will is to do God's will as opposed to his own will, to fulfill God's mission as opposed to his own mission, to complete God's agenda as opposed to his own agenda, to fulfill God's desires, if that's the disposition of my heart and yours, when we come to Christ and to his teaching, then what happens? He, that person, will what? No. That person will know whether the teaching, and I think you can add here, whether Jesus himself Jesus comes not only telling us the truth, but he comes as the truth embodied. We'll know whether the person of Jesus and whether his teachings are really from God or whether I, Jesus, am speaking on my own authority. And so then where is the battleground of faith? Is it in your mind? It's in your heart. It's a fascinating thought, isn't it? It's interesting. Believing in Jesus is not primarily an intellectual battle. It's a moral one. It's not a battle of the mind. It's a battle of the heart. It's a battle of the will. It's a battle in which we need to come and say, you know, when I come to Jesus and to His Word, am I more interested in me or Him? 
God's will or mine? My desires or his? His agenda or mine? My mission or his? And maybe you're thinking, I don't know. I mean, how do I know the answer to that? Okay, I'm going to ask you some questions, okay? You ready? Like the whole areas are real obvious, aren't they? Right now you're going, oh, I know what he's going to say. He's going to talk about this again. Yeah? Because it's a battle for your heart. Simple question. Do you tithe? Just throwing that one out there, a little pause. Everybody uncomfortably squirms. But you don't have to. Do you tithe? And I say that because that is a countable, objectifiable, real life, no getting around it, simple to answer, God's will versus my will, God's desires versus my desires, God's agenda versus my agenda, God's mission versus my mission, who or what is on the throne of my heart right now? Question. All right, next question. You're happy, right? Do you serve? God hasn't just given you resources, guys. He's given you gifts. He's given you time. He's given you abilities. He's given you passions. He's given you energy. He's given you life itself. I was talking to somebody before the service, and they said, hey, you know, I just recently filled out my find your thing, do your thing on the web. I was really excited about that. I love it when people come to me and go, you know, I think I found my thing. I'm like, right on. Find your thing. Figure out how it is that God has made you to build his kingdom most strategically, most efficiently, most effectively in this season of your life and do it. Find your thing, do your thing. Are you even asking those questions? All right, next one. Are there off-limit topics with God? I think maybe we already get out with a few perhaps, but are there any others? So, Lord, we can talk about tithing because I've been doing that for years. I'm very comfortable in that conversation unless you want to kind of up the ante a little bit, in which case, eh, you know, maybe not. But I'm good with that. We can have that conversation. But don't talk to me about pornography. Let's not go there. Notwithstanding the fact that it is eating my soul, let's not go there. Notwithstanding the fact that it is destroying my marriage. You're like, but I'm single. It's destroying your future marriage right now. So we can talk about this and this. And in fact, I'll give you a whole host of topics, Lord. We can have all kinds of conversations that I'm very comfortable with, not this one. Or Lord, you know, we can talk about serving because I'm big in that, but don't talk to me about my girlfriend or boyfriend. Let's not even go there because I already know what you're going to say. Don't talk to me about my marriage. Just leave that alone. Don't speak to me of forgiveness and sacrifice. I don't want to hear it. Work. Off-limit areas. And what's interesting as the preacher, you know, you enter into these messages and you come to stuff like, and you think, oh, I've got to make a whole list of topics. Actually, I really don't. I, I probably didn't even need to go through that list. Because here's the deal. If you're really engaging, if you're opening your heart, if your will is to do God's will this morning, I didn't need to mention any of these things because the Spirit's just going to come to you and go, hey, um, we've had this conversation before, and you're going to know exactly what it is. It's the way that he works. I get people who come up to me sometimes and go, man, I loved it when you talked about this in your sermons. I'm going back to my notes like, where did I say that? Listening to the recording, I'm pretty sure I didn't even bring that up. Do you have ears to hear? If anyone's will is to do God's will as opposed to his own will, Jesus says, if that's the disposition with which you approach me in your heart and you come to me and to my teachings, well, then that person will know whether the person and work and teaching of Jesus Christ is from God or whether I, Jesus, am speaking on my own authority. But if you don't come that way, well, then you won't. And notice what he says about people who speak on their own authority. 
and just kind of visualize the religious leaders going red in the face from the neck up. He says, but the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him, and that would be me, Jesus is saying, is true, and in him there is no falsehood, but there is falsehood in the religious leaders, and Jesus here is going to point it out very specifically. And what is he going to say to me? And what is he going to say to you? Because there's falsehood in us too. I mean, I can't deny that, and I have to actively deal with that in faith making my desire God's desire, sitting under the teachings of Christ and under the authority of Christ as opposed to above it, picking and choosing what I like because I'm wiser, right? I know better. Jesus says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood, but there is falsehood in you guys, he's saying to the religious leaders. And now he points it out. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Now, what is he pointing to? He's pointing to the word of God, to these places in the word of God where God comes to us as his people and says, here's how to live. You should tithe because you need to for the good of your own soul. You should serve as an expression of genuine love and concern for me as your father and and for the people around me who need Christ. You should love your wife. You should respect your husband. Has not Moses given you the law, he says to these guys, you know, thou shalt not lie and thou shalt not commit adultery and thou shalt not kill, which is where he's going. Has not Moses given you the law? And yet none of you keeps it, he says, for why do you seek to kill me? Man, these guys are getting schooled publicly. And of course, they deny it. But then look at verse 32. It says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Jesus, you know, about him maybe being the Messiah and And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And then we read, and then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. What is he saying? He's saying, let me tell you what's coming. You guys are going to crucify me. I'm going to die. I will be buried. But I will rise victoriously over sin and death for my people. I will rise from the grave. I will ascend into heaven. I will send forth the Spirit, he says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. And look what he says to them. He says, you will seek me. In fact, you will look all over the place for my missing body. And you will not find me, and here's why. He says, where I am going, you cannot come. Where is he going, guys? Heaven. What is he saying? Well, let me read it again. He says, where I am going... You cannot come. The Lord is not subtle. Only people with faith in Christ, real faith, can go there. That's what he's purchased for us. And we read this in verse 37. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, and it's the day on which this large golden container was filled with water from the pool of Siloam. And then it was marched by the high priest with a great procession back up into the temple area. It was, you know, kind of celebrated with the blasting of trumpets and with the singing of the psalms, with the threefold cry of the people, give thanks to the Lord, and then it was poured out. Part of the big celebration that everybody knew 
on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts. If anyone has been left thirsty by the little gods they're worshiping, then let him come to me and drink. Whoever, what? Because it's our word, believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart, which again is the battleground of faith, will flow rivers of living water. And then John says, he says, now this Jesus said about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. However, from our vantage point today, he has been glorified. Jesus has lived the perfect life God requires of us for us. Jesus has died the sinner's death we deserve for us. Jesus lay in the grave three days and has risen over sin and over death for us. Jesus has ascended into heaven from which he reigns and rules in ways that we don't always understand, do we? And yet for us. And he has sent forth his spirit. His spirit lives in his people and moves and operates through the preaching of his word, for example, and in many other ways as well. But I wonder this morning, as you've listened to this message, what is he saying to you? Is he coming to you and going, hey, um, <clears throat> I think you're a little bit more like these guys that had no faith than maybe you thought when you came in. And perhaps what you need to do today is to confess that before the Lord and lay that down before him and stop battling with him and instead surrender the whole of you to him. Give your life to him and know the satisfaction that comes not from the little gods of this world, but from the living water of the Spirit of Christ that is found only through true and authentic faith in Christ and begin the journey of truly knowing him. If that's you, then that's the call to you today. But what about the rest of us? Because we're still battling with it, right? Hopefully we're getting better and better and better as God continues his work and shaping us and making us more and more and more like Jesus. But I, I think that many of us, including me, you know, we have that faith in Christ and yet there are these little gods that we still battle with, that these things that the Lord might come to us in a service like this with and go, you know, this is the thing that I've been wanting to talk to you about for a long time. And every time I bring it up, you, la, 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 you know. You shut my word, the devotion ends. Change the radio because I don't want to hear that song. Time out on the conversation because I think I know what the Spirit is saying. We resist what's good for us, don't we? Maybe the Lord today is calling to you and he's saying, listen, just like self-interest, if you will, kept them from any faith and it kept them from me, to some degree it's still keeping you from me. Lay down your little gods. And let me be your God, really. Not just your Savior, but your everything. Because John has written this gospel to us so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing, we might have abundant and eternal life in His name. Amen? Okay, let's pray.